listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Let's jump in. Um, Our first question uh, is from Eric Ferreira, and uh, it's a good question, too. Um, And I'm going to read the question, and I'm going to give you kind of the answer um, that I've written down. And I might might elaborate a little bit on some of these, too. But here's Eric's question. Eric says, uh, in Psalm 8, 5... It's written, uh, for you have made him a little lower than God. Elohim is the Hebrew word there. And crowned him with glory and honor. But when the writer of Hebrews quotes that verse from the Septuagint, for those of you that don't know, the Septuagint is just the Greek version or Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and then it was later translated into Greek and many of the apostles, uh, and of course, quotations in the New Testament from the old, from the old are, in, are from that Greek version. They're from the Septuagint. So when the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8.5, he quotes it from the Septuagint as, you have made him a little lower than the angels. So Psalm 8.5, it says, you've made him a little lower than God. But then in Hebrews, it says, you've made him a little lower than the angels. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. Jewish tradition holds that Psalm 8.5 should be understood as angels. Even though that's not what it says, it uses the word Elohim, which is God. That's a slight change in the wording, but it seems like a pretty significant change in meaning. Do you have any insight to clear up the apparent mistranslation in the Septuagint? And so it's, uh, again, he says an apparent mistranslation in the Septuagint. Let me give you an answer to this. Very interesting. Um, this, is, this is the scholar's answer from uh, the New English Translation Full Notes Edition on whether or not, and of course, let me read Psalm 8.5. Let me read Psalm 8.5 from the ESV. This is the English Standard Version. Listen to what it says. Um, Yet you have made, well, I'll read verse 4 too. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's what the ESV says. And crown him with glory and honor. So let me deal with this because the word here is Elohim in the Hebrew. It's the word Elohim, which, and you'll see this now. It says the the Hebrew term Elohim can refer to the one true God. It can also refer to false gods or the heavenly beings, which is angels. In this context, it would refer either to God or the angels. The Septuagint reads angels and is the source of the quotation of Psalm 8, 5 in Hebrews, as he said. Um, But in Genesis 3, 5, where the serpent says to the woman, you will be like the heavenly beings who know good and evil. Um, Note note in Genesis 3, 22, God says the man has become like one of us. So, uh, for example, in Psalm 82, when it says he stands among the gods and he judges among the gods, uh, Elohim again is the word there. Uh, it may refer to the, re- to the members of the heavenly assembly. Uh, so 
the other thing it could be is like a written rebuke against false gods. That's the other thought process. But to answer the question here, um, it, it, either way, it, the, the point that the psalmist is making is that human beings or man has been created in, it seems, in rank and file in a flesh body lit, uh, lower than the heavenly beings. So one of the things that's important to, to know when you're studying ancient languages like ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek is that words can have what they call a semantic range. This is a very important thought, especially on this question. Words can have what they call a semantic range, which means it can mean, based on context, it can mean multiple different things. So as this uh, scholar explains about the semantic range of Elohim, it can refer in some contexts to the one true God. It can refer in some contexts to false gods. It can refer in some contexts to uh, angelic beings. So it seems as though the context of Psalm 85 and, and Hebrews is heavenly beings. It's just making the point that man was created lower than heavenly beings, which I think is why uh, the ESV is a good translation of this verse where it says that, uh, that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, group, kind of grouping them all in together to show you kind of the rank and file of humans to heavenly beings. So I don't think it's really a mistranslation. It's just kind of an explanation of what the semantic range of that word can mean. And so it, it, it does matter. The context does matter, uh, when it comes down to it. So for example, uh, the word in the Greek language, uh, graphe can actually mean written scriptures, or it can just mean writings or things that were written. So what, how do we know if that Greek word graphe means the scriptures, the Holy scriptures, or if it just means things that were written or, or, you know, written down, it's by the context. We look at the context of the passage to see what the semantic range of that word means in that particular passage. Let me make a quick note here. This is one of the mistakes that uh, preachers can often make when they use something like a Strong's Concordance, because they'll open up a Strong's Concordance and they'll say, well, what does this word mean in the Greek? And then you'll see the word, the Greek word, and then you'll see all of these words in English underneath it. And they'll say, well, see that you, it means all these words. So you could literally just swap in any one of these words that this Greek word means. That's not true. That's not the case. That's not how the concordance works. It's, it's showing you the semantic range of that word that throughout the new Testament, that Greek word is translated as those English words, depending on the context. So, uh, same is true here. Semantic range. It just means uh, in this context, lower than the heavenly beings. And it's a great question from Eric Ferreira. Uh, question number two is from Elise Clark. Uh, she said, would definitely enjoy your thoughts on Matthew 18, 10, as it speaks to the angels of little ones that always behold the father's face. I don't believe in guardian angels and was glad to hear your thoughts on that. But when you mentioned that there isn't a passage that speaks to assigned angels concerning us as individuals, I wondered about this verse. And if you might, uh, and if you thought maybe it was the unborn and young children. So let's go there. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10. And you guys can put these in the comments as well. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10. For those that'll go back later and watch 
uh, the broadcast or listen to it. Uh, Matthew 18, 10 says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. And so let me give you the answer on that. Um, this verse does not, it's not a proof text, uh, for the fact that every believer is assigned a guardian angel. In fact, um, we do know that angels can be assigned by God to guard God's people. And so we're not saying that angels don't guard God's children. The Bible shows us that they do in the old and the new testaments. So for sure, one of the jobs of angels, uh, is guarding God's people. And I think we dealt with that on the day where we were talking about, uh, angels and the purpose of angels. One of the things they definitely do is guard you and me. They are ministering spirits and that's one of their jobs, but there's not really anywhere in the Bible that tells us that every believer is assigned a guardian angel. Um, now we do know that that was, uh, in, in Judaism, that was kind of a Jewish belief. And I believe in Catholicism, that's kind of a, a Catholic belief as well today that every, uh, believer is assigned a guardian angel. But, um, one of the things that I also want to point out is, um, Daniel Davis kind of had a, a tag on to this, uh, question about guardian angels. And, uh, she, she was talking about this and asked this question. She said, um, I heard teaching that, uh, and we'll probably deal with this in another question here subsequently, that all angels are males. They're all masculine. Um, but I heard someone teach that our guardian angels look like us. They look like us. But how can that be if I'm a female and the Bible uh, shows all angels as male or masculine? Well, the thought that uh, the thought that was being taught there that our our angels look like us was most likely being taken from uh, the book of Acts chapter 12, I'm guessing, where Peter is, is uh, delivered from jail. And then he comes back to the house where the believers are gathered together praying for him. And he knocks at the door. And the Bible says that the, uh, the young girl comes to the door and, uh, and, and sees him, recognizes his voice and uh, runs back and tells everybody else, Peter's standing at the gate. And then Acts 12, 15, and they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she, she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, no, it's his angel. It's his angel. Now, obviously we know here that it was not his angel. It was Peter himself. He'd been delivered from prison. But as some scholars suggest that it's possible that the reason they were saying this is because in Judaism, it was a common belief that each a person had their own guardian angel, but the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. And the Bible definitely does not teach anywhere that your angel looks like you. In fact, uh, I would say this when it comes to angelic appearances in the Bible. Um, it's interesting to me that, uh, that, um, that angels, whenever they did appear, the majority of times that you see them appearing to people 
uh, in the Bible, the first thing you hear them say is fear not because the appearance of an angel is a fearsome or a very intimidating thing. It's an intimidating, it's an intimidating thing to encounter an angel. And so, um, that would show you, it's like, well, it's not like, oh, I just saw a human being. Now there are, there are other times the Bible says that we can entertain angels unaware, meaning that it's possible they can take the form of a person, a human being, and that we wouldn't know that it is an angel working. I do believe that can happen. But for the most part, every time you see angels showing up in the Bible to humans, it's always fear not because they're, they're fearsome, intimidating, supernatural beings. Then when you read the description of angels, they don't look anything like humans. They're not made in the image of God like we are. They look different. And uh, as I dealt with, I believe on the day of uh, angels, we have two different words that are defined, define angels. Of course, we have the cherubim and we have the seraphim. Now there's only one reference for seraphim and I believe it's Isaiah chapter six. Um, but in Isaiah ch chapter six, the fiery ones, the seraphim, uh, are described as having six wings, uh, two that cover their face, two that cover their body and two that fly. Whereas the cherubim have four wings, two that cover their face and two that fly. And so, uh, you read other passages about angels. They have many different eyes, you know, all this different stuff. They don't look like human beings. Angels don't look like human beings. And so the thought that angels look like us, uh, is not necessarily biblical at all. And the Bible in Acts 12 is not saying that angels look like us. It's only giving us a narrative of what these people said to the girl that saw Peter at the door. No, it's his angel. And so, uh, there's no reason, there's no reason to believe that, uh, every individual has a guardian angel. Now that doesn't mean that God's not protecting all of his children. God has a desire to protect his children, but it just, it just doesn't tell us specifically. And we can't be dogmatic about the fact that every believer has a guardian angel assigned to them. Uh, let's move on. Number three, this is more of a, a this is a deeper question. Uh, Steven, if you're still on, this is your question, but you know what? I'm not positive how to pronounce your last name. Is it Lefebvre? 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 I'm not sure, but I'm giving it my best shot. But Stephen asks this question. Is the spirit of anything, for example, spirit of antichrist, spirit of jealousy, spirit of fear that comes on to someone, especially Christians, is it an actual demon spirit that affects someone with the power of suggestion or something? Or is it a spirit as in he's in bad spirits? Meaning it's the character of that individual. Oh, look at that. Lefebvre. So I was pretty clear with the, the French pronunciation. Um, and so uh, John Napier, if uh, I didn't get your question in, please send it in. We have it. Yes, we do have it, John. You didn't miss it. So Stephen asks, is it just about the, the spirit of that person or that individual? For example, a spirit of fear just means that my spirit is fearful. Or is it a demon spirit of fear trying to attack me? And we did answer this the other day that we can see, although people can be fearful, even Christians can be fearful, we believe that there is an actual spirit of fear. And one of the ways that you can see that manifest is when people uh, are suffering from uh, anxiety and fear when there's literally 
no reason to be afraid. And all that doctors can do is medicate it or try to counsel you because there's like, we dealt with agoraphobia, people that will not leave their house, even though there's nothing to be afraid of. There's literally people that are just battling severe anxiety and have panic attacks. It's like, for what reason? Why are you afraid? Why are you panicking? What's the fear about? And it's not explainable. And so we believe that there is a spirit of fear that attacks uh, Christians and unbelievers that you have to take authority over. Just as we believe that a spirit of infirmity can attack uh, a Christian or an unbeliever and you have to take authority over it. Karen, stop claiming that you have agoraphobia. You're, you're a Christian, say that you have the spirit of Christ, say that you do not have the spirit of fear, say that you have a spirit of faith, speak the right things out of your mouth, and don't claim negative things over your life. You have the spirit of God living in you, not the spirit of fear. He's given you power and love and a sound mind. Start saying what the spirit says. And so to answer that question, I believe it can be both, Stephen, that you can have a fearful person. But the spirit of fear is an actual demon spirit that tries to attack spirit of infirmity, unclean spirit, whatever the ones that we dealt with through the two days, uh, I believe that you can see both happening, but I do believe in spirits that attack as the Bible teaches they do. Stephen's second question on top of that is this, uh, what are the seven spirits of God in the book of Revelation referenced in Revelation 1, 4, 3, 1, 4, 5, and 5, 6? Does it have anything to do with how you describe the spirit of power, love, and sound mind in 2 Timothy 1, 7? Uh, Most likely not, Stephen. And I'll give you, um, and I know there's a lot of debate on, on who these spirits are or what these spirits are. And so we can't necessarily be dogmatic about what the seven spirits of God are in the book of Revelation. However, the consensus seemed to agree that it's a representation of the Holy Spirit. And let me read you uh, several notes here. I'll give you three notes. Number one, um, the seven spirits is another name for the Holy Spirit. The number seven is used throughout Revelation to symbolize completeness and perfection. Um, And then, of course, in Dake's notes, it's not the seven titles of the Holy Spirit, for there are more titles than this that are applied to the Spirit. Since the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, we know that there's but one Holy Spirit. And since the lamb is a symbol of Christ, the seven lamps of fire, the seven horns, seven eyes are all symbolic of the one Holy Spirit and can denote his fullness and power upon the lamb before the throne. And then I found this was very interesting in Zechariah uh, chapter four. If you go back to Zechariah, it's interesting that uh, verses two through six are in reference to the spirit of God. Listen to this. Zechariah chapter four, verses two through six. The Bible says, and he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and one on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So it's the, these here are being uh, referenced as the spirit of God. So most 
scholars, and commentaries seem to agree that the seven spirits before the throne is symbolic of the Holy Spirit in his completeness and his perfection. That's an excellent question. Um, Teresa asked a question about, uh, she felt, she felt like she's being harassed where she lived. Uh, she felt like there's a witch that's living above her where she's at and that there's constant attack. It's a constant spiritual attack. How do I deal with a constant spiritual attack? And you only can deal with spiritual attacks with a spiritual, uh, answer. And so you take authority over demon spirits. As I dealt with uh, this fact that every Christian who's filled with the Holy Ghost is filled with the greater one, the Bible says, 1 John 4, 4. The greater one is on the inside of you. So you take authority over the devil. You take authority over demon spirits. You cast out devils. That's what you do. You cast out devils. You don't let devils just do whatever they want, demons do whatever they want, and you definitely don't put up with them harassing you. You cast out evil spirits. And so if there's somebody that's harassing you demonically, you cast that spirit out. Pray in the Holy Ghost. Stir up the anointing until either that person's so uncomfortable they have to move or until they get delivered. But don't put up with the devil's crap. Literally, you need to learn how to take authority over the spirit of Antichrist. Remember this. The word Christ does, is not Jesus' last name. It is the word that means the anointed one. It means the anointed one. So anything that is anti-Christ is anti-anointing, anti-the anointed one. And so the fact that the anointing lives in you, dwells in you, shows you why that they oppose you. They don't like the anointing. They don't like the spirit of God. They're opposed to the spirit of God. You take authority over it and cast it out in the mighty name of Jesus. And remember this, the name of Jesus truly is greater than uh, anything, any spirit. You look in the, in the New Testament, there was no demon that could uh, withstand the, the powerful name of Jesus and the anointing. The only ones that really had any trouble uh, you look at the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts chapter 19, but notice that they were even trying to lean on Paul's anointing and Paul's ministry, showing you that they didn't carry their own anointing. They weren't walking in their own authority. They told that demon possessed man, they spoke to the demon in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. Well, why is it that it's not the Jesus you preach? Why is it that you're trying to lean on somebody else's anointing and somebody else's authority? And the demon did not respond to their commands because they didn't carry their own authority and overpowered them. You see what I mean? And so the other thing is, it's important to remember that there are levels of demonic power. And so you look at, for example, Mark chapter nine, and here the disciples had an issue casting a demon out of a boy. And Jesus explained to them why that demon didn't come out when they commanded it. First, he said, because of your unbelief. But he said, this kind of demon doesn't come out except by prayer. And in some translations or some manuscripts, later manuscripts, prayer and fasting. So Jesus is making the point that 
It's your level of dedication and prayer. It's you spending time in the anointing that allows you to carry the authority to cast out devils. You can't, uh, you cannot be flippant with your spiritual life and expect to manifest spiritual power. Anybody that's done anything powerful for the kingdom of God has been a person of prayer and fasting. You know, this month we're giving uh, Dr. Uh, David Young, he chose book away, prayer that brings revival. Here's a man that built the largest church in the world and built it on prayer and fasting. When his mother-in-law, Madam Che, was asked, how did you guys build the biggest church in the world? And you know what her answer was? We pray, 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 and fast, fast, fast. That, that was her answer. We pray, 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 we fast, fast, fast. Look at Dr. Enoch Adeboye who took the redeemed Christian church of God in Nigeria from 160 churches to churches in 160 nations. How did he do that? Here's a man that until he was 70 years old, prayed and fasted 40 for 40 days, three times a year, 120 days of prayer and fasting. So, uh, if you want to have influence in the supernatural realm, you've got to be a person of prayer and fasting. It doesn't just come cheaply. And Jesus, notice this, Jesus was a man of prayer. Of all of the things that the disciples saw him doing, did you ever notice they never said, Lord, teach us to heal the sick. Lord, teach us to cast out devils. Lord, teach us. They never asked that. Notice what they did ask him. Lord, teach us to pray. You know why? Even the disciples understood this is the key in Jesus' life that is causing such great results in his ministry. And so they didn't bother asking, teach us to cast out devils, teach us to heal the sick, teach us to, no, they said, teach us to pray because they made the connection. And that's the point that Jesus is teaching. Yes, I believe Dory, that is why the early church fasted two days a week because they understood it was Christ's expectation for his children and they knew what it produced when you fasted and prayed. That's why the early church was so successful. That even though it was a literally a death sentence to be a Christian for 300 years, they still kept going after it and turned their known world upside down. And it was through fasting and prayer and their dedication to the kingdom. And so you've got to be a spiritual person if you want to see spiritual results. You've got to be, put that in the comments, somebody do that. You've got to be a spiritual person to have spiritual results. You've got to be a spiritual person to have spiritual results. I want you to put that in the comments and don't forget it. It's so very important. You've got to be a spiritual person to have spiritual results. Nancy says, yes, we did 65 days of prayer and fasting with daddy Gio. And that's talking about the, the general overseer. That's pastor Enoch Adeboye. Yeah, it's true. Nikki said, some people think fasting is staying away from social media and that's not what it is. That's not what it is. It's never been that. It is not eating food. I deal with that in, in my uh, latest book, uh, Complete Guide to uh, Biblical Fasting. You've got to be a spiritual person to have spiritual results. Got to. And that's what Jesus was saying. That's what he was pushing. If you want to see demons come out, pray and fast. If you want to see miracles, pray and fast. You can't just be carnal and expect to have spiritual things happen. And the same thing's true with us. If we want to see 
God used us in these ways. We've got to be people of uh, prayer and fasting. Carissa said a pastor down here did a Dr. Pepper fast. <laughs> oh, I'm fasting Dr. Pepper. Flesh was really put under on that one. <laughs> so it's a great question, but that is how you take care of demon spirits that attack you. You take authority over them and cast them out. And if you feel like you're not at a place of, of strength to do that, then let me just tell you, it's time to fast and pray. Time to fast and pray. If you guys don't have my book on fasting that just came out, you need to get it. Come, uh, this is a complete guide to biblical fasting. We released it for the new year. Uh, it's available on our website that you see on the screen. It's available on Amazon. It's available on Apple Books. It's available for Kindle devices. It's available everywhere. You need to get it. It'll bless you. And so let's go, let's go on to the next question. So that answers that. Now, Jerry asks a question, and it's a good question too, because you hear this often in charismatic circles. Do we command angels or demons to do things for you? And I'm sure she means, do we command angels to do things for us? And can we command demons? The answer to that is, as I just covered, you can command demon spirits. You command them to come out. You cast them out. You cast them out. So for that part of the question, yes, you can command demon spirits to go out. You have authority over all the powers of the devil, the Bible says. Dave Condon, it's the Forrest Gump fast. I must have had me 15 Dr. Peppers. <laughs> that was my best Forrest Gump. Uh, the other side of the question is, do we as Christians command angels? Do we as Christians command angels? Um, I would answer it this way. See, I'm, I've gone back and forth on this question because I truly believe strongly in Pauline revelation or our, our union with Christ that we are Christ because you can't be part of his body and not be him. Right? So it's like me saying like, you know, I, if I introduce you to if I introduce myself to you as Ted, that's not just my head. These hands are Ted. My body is Ted. My legs are Ted. My feet are Ted. My whole body is Ted. So if we are in Christ's body, then we are Christ. That's Paul's revelation that we are in him, that we are of him, that we are um, you know, united with him in baptism in death, burial, resurrection, ascension, seeding. We are one with Christ. He's the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So because of that, I, uh, I have, I, I have an understanding where I believe that if you have the authority of Christ, then you should be able to do what Christ does. You can cast out devils. You can heal the sick. You can speak things into existence is what we believe. Um, however, the other side of this argument is that we don't have any examples of anybody in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, commanding angels. Thank you, Daniel. We don't have any example of the apostles commanding angels. We don't have any example of the Christians commanding angels to do things. Uh, Old Testament, 
It is God who commands his angels. And, um, you know, that should be a little bit of a hint to us. I mean, if that was the case, and I know we have, we have these different things. A lot of times we've got charismatic and Pentecostal confessions where people are, you know, you know, we send angels to do this. We send angels to do that. Uh, probably the more proper thing would be to ask the Lord to send angels because we see him commanding his angels. We don't see humans commanding his angel. In fact, uh, quite the opposite is like the old Testament, uh, angels came into Sodom and Gomorrah and literally they were the ones that grabbed a hold of Lot and his family and rushed them out. It seemed as though they were in command of Lot and his family, not Lot and his family in command of the angels. Uh, it's like when P the, P the angel came to get Peter out of prison, the angel was there in command of the situation and the angel of the Lord commanded that situation, opened the doors and led Peter out. Peter didn't lead the angel out. So it seems as though that the more proper way to look at this is to let God uh, have, you know, full reign and not try to usurp his authority and, and command his angels. He commands his angels. And so we could pray. In fact, we don't pray to angels anyway, but we pray to God and let God do what he sees fit to answer your prayers. Whether that be him working on your behalf personally, him sending angels to work on your behalf, the power of the Holy Ghost in you moving, however it manifests. But let God be the one who decides how prayers are answered. And I think that's the best way to look at it. And it's a great question, Jerry. Todd Langford asked the question, how can an angel, which has a celestial body, become a demon and possess a human body? I was always told that it wasn't possible and that demons were spirits. So let's break this down because this is an interesting question. Great question, Todd Langford. Uh, how can an angel uh, which has a celestial body become a demon and then possess a human body? I was always told it wasn't possible. Demons were spirits. Okay, so we've got to answer this. So angels are supernatural beings. Angels are supernatural beings. Satan, think about this, Satan, who was an angel, Lucifer was an angel. Number one, he was able to enter a serpent in the garden. So here's a supernatural being, Satan, who we know was an angel, entered into a serpent's body in the garden. Secondly, the Bible teaches us in prophecy that Satan himself will fill the Antichrist during the second half of the tribulation, which the Bible calls the great tribulation, that he will be possessed by Satan himself. So we know that uh, angels do have the ability to inhabit human bodies or even animal bodies. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that the sons of God, speaking of angels, laid with the daughters of men and then produced giants in the land. That was the offspring of angels and women. So we know that angels have the ability, spiritual beings, to inhabit uh, human. Of course, those were fallen angels, as we know. But the, the second question really kind of is on this. How can angels really become, are they demon spirits is really the question. Because there is this teaching that fallen angels are different than human spirits or excuse me, than demon spirits. 
that fallen angels are different than, than demon spirits. What's the difference? And I would disagree with that totally. I believe that fallen angels are demon spirits. I believe that. And let me tell you a couple of reasons why I do believe that. First of all, uh, if, if fallen angels are not demon spirits, then you have to explain where demon spirits came from. So let's look at that. Where could demon spirits have come from if they're not fallen angels? Well, the, some of them might say, well, the devil created them. Well, he can't create them. The devil, Satan, is not a creator. He can't create. That's reserved for God himself, for the Godhead. In fact, uh, demons could not have been created by the devil even before the worlds or, or, or before the foundations of the world because the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, speaking of Jesus, all things, all things were created by him or through him, through Christ, the word made flesh. And without him was nothing made that was made. And so the argument that the devil created demons cannot be the case. He's not a creator. So that's number one. The second thing is some people will say, well, I think demon spirits are uh, the souls of sinners who have died. And now they are kind of in Satan's army doing his bidding. This is also not true because we know from uh, scripture that when somebody who is unsaved dies, that, and as for right now, the time frame we're in, their spirit descends into a place of suffering in Hades below the earth that they cannot escape from. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and that there were two compartments of Hades, that there was a place called paradise where Jesus went, and that's where Lazarus, the poor man was. And then there was the place of suffering where the rich man was. And between those two places, there was a great chasm that could not be crossed. And the rich man was locked in that place of suffering and could not get out and was asking for people to be sent, an angel or people to be sent to go speak to his family and tell them about this. And so one, when a person who is unsaved dies, they don't just roam the earth. They are cast into the, the place of suffering, the suffering compartment of Hades. And eventually, after all of prophecy is fulfilled, Gehenna, the lake of fire, will be opened up. Satan, all of his demons, and every disobedient spirit that has rejected Christ will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And so demons can't be the souls of sinners who have died. So number one, they're not spirits created by the devil. Number two, they're not the souls of sinners who have died. The only other argument that I've heard is that they are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, the, the children, the giants that were created by fallen angels and women, which I also don't believe to be true. I believe that although the Bible tells us, yes, the Nephilim and fallen angels are different, uh, most believe that the Nephilim were the giants that were created, Nikki, by fallen angels mating with human women. And some people believe that demon spirits are the disembodied spirits 
of the Nephilim, after the giants were killed, that those spirits produced by fallen angels and women became demons. I also don't believe this. And the reason is, is because I don't believe that they produced demon spirits in, in human bodies. I believe they just pr produced human beings that were giants. Because even when you look at the, the prime example, which is the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary, even when the Holy Spirit seed impregnated Mary, she gave birth to a human being. Jesus was a human being. Jesus was a human being. And so he had to be attempted in all points like we are. He was not above human beings. He was a human being. Though he was God in the flesh, he was still a human being. And when his body died, his spirit went into paradise. And of course, he was resurrected. And so the belief here that uh, demon spirits were somehow created by fallen angels uh, mating with human women, I don't believe is true at all. I believe the fallen angels uh, became demon spirits. I believe those two terms are interchangeable. Uh, in fact, those fallen angels that mated with human women, uh, God punished them directly, the Bible says, and that they are chained in gloomy darkness in Tartarus, the book of Jude tells us, for their indiscretions. So God so looked down on the acts that they took to pollute the bloodline of man that God chained them in gloomy darkness for the, waiting for the judgment day. So those fallen angels literally could not even roam the earth as others are doing right now as demon spirits could not do that. They are literally being held for, for punishment in chains currently. And so to answer Todd's question, I don't believe that fallen angels are different than demon spirits. And for the three reasons I just gave, I believe they're interchangeable and, um, we can see very plainly that they can inhabit human bodies. It happened all through the New Testament, and that's why we're commanded to cast out demons. Excellent question from Todd Langford. Uh, Lowenda asks uh, a similar question on this subject. Lowenda Hallberg says, is that how Goliath came? Uh, it, was he a Nephilim? Was Goliath one of those beings that came from a fallen angel mating with a human woman. There's, there's, uh, there are multiple views on this. The Bible tells us that there were Nephilim in the earth before the flood. And then the Bible tells us that there were Nephilim in the earth after the flood. So uh, whether this happened, obviously it had to happen, happen again, but here's the thought. And this is the thought of, of some scholars today. Uh, the first of all, the Bible never calls Goliath a Nephilim, never calls him that. Um, it, it also lists who he was descended from in scripture because it talks about his brother in another passage and where his brother, who his brother, uh, descended from. And so some scholars believe that the term, um, Nephilim especially after the flood became a semi-technical term for a giant warrior or a fierce warrior. You know, like for example, how we would use the term monster, right? 
if you saw a guy fighting in the UFC and he's just like a savage, somebody might say, man, that dude is a monster. We don't actually believe that the man fighting in the ring in the UFC is an actual monster. We're using it as a semi-technical term because we know what it implies about him. He's a savage. He's a fierce fighter. Say so he's a that guy's a monster. Or when we when we call something a monster truck, we don't believe that the truck itself is an actual monster, but it, it it's being spoken of as a monstrosity or something that is massive or something that is uh, extremely strong or powerful. And so as we've taken some of these terms and we've uh, made them semi-technical. Some scholars believe that that's what happened uh, after the flood um, with, the, with the term Nephilim, is that it just referred to those that were giants or simply fierce warriors. Fierce warriors. So, for example, let me, um, let me take you in and read you just th- that passage Back in Genesis, the Bible says that, uh, let me go back to it here. Because there's a point that I want to pull out for you guys that the Bible actually says. I thought I wrote it uh, down, but I did not. So let me just pull it up. The Bible says, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, the Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, talking about the days of Noah, look at this now, in those days and also afterward. So talking about before and after the flood. But then listen to what it says. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they were born children of them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So if the flood did wipe out all of, now there's an excellent teaching on this that I heard Pastor Willie George do, that one of the reasons that the devil tried to do this was to pollute the bloodline of man so that the Messiah could not come. And when, when Noah was called a perfect and upright man, part of that was talking about the fact that he was pure and he was actually somebody who was qualified to repopulate the earth with human beings once again, that that bloodline was not in Noah. And that's why he was chosen part of his righteousness, his obedience to God and his purity and his family's purity, that they could produce a race of beings on the earth once again, that were pure, that the Messiah could come through. This is why... Uh, Pastor Willie George argued as well that the devil doesn't try to do this again today. Why? Because people ask, well, why doesn't the devil try to send fallen angels again today to lie with women? Well, he's already failed. The Messiah has already come and there's harsh punishment for those that did it. So why would he lose more of his resources when the purpose has already been fulfilled? You see what I mean? So there are some scholars that believe that the term Nephilim became a semi-technical term to just... uh, like, for example, Goliath, the Bible doesn't call him a Nephilim, uh, even in the uh, promised land when they enter Canaan. And the Bible says that there are giants in the promised land. The Bible doesn't necessarily call them Nephilim, uh, but there were fierce warriors. There were giants 
And, um, but you can't be dogmatic about it because there's not really a way, it doesn't describe it fully. There's not really a way to know. But um, with, with Goliath, we don't necessarily know for sure, uh, but the Bible does not refer to him as Nephilim. So it's a good question from Loenda, but uh, again, you can't be dogmatic about it. Um, this is an interesting question. Britt and Dawn uh, kind of have these, these questions together. Britt Lukens and Dawn Kay, do angels have a gender? Here's the question, and I'm sure that many of you have heard this talked about before. Uh, lift your hands in the comments, by the way, if you have heard this question or have wondered about this. Do angels have a gender? And maybe you've heard people talking about female angels. And certainly, in Christian art throughout the ages, we have female angels depicted in uh, Christian-based or Christian-themed paintings and works of art throughout the centuries. We have pictures of that. But let's answer this question because really the reason that this question is asked is because of a misconception about what Jesus said when he was being questioned about uh, marriage in heaven. Whose wife or whose, whose, uh, whose husband or excuse me, whose wife will she be in heaven? talking about her husband who died and then had married his brother, then he died, then married his brother, then he died. So whose husband will she be in heaven? And Jesus said, the reason you're asking this is because you don't understand how it works. That when you get to heaven, you'll be like the angels not married or given in marriage. So Jesus is not saying that angels don't have a gender. He's not saying that. He's saying that they, they're not married and they don't, they're not given in marriage and that we'll be that way as well when we get to heaven. But he's not saying that angels don't have a gender. In fact, the Bible seems to imply that angels do have a gender. The Bible seems to imply that angels do have a gender. I'll give you a couple of things on that. Number one, when people encounter angels in the Bible, they are always dressed as and appear as men. That's the first thing. When people encounter angels in the Bible, they are always dressed as and appear as men. Secondly, um, the only two names that we have of angels in the Bible are masculine names. So we have Michael and Gabriel. We have Michael and Gabriel. Two male names. It's not Michelle. It's not M Mikhail. It's not Michaela. It's Michael. Michael and Gabriel. And so those are the only two names we have of angels. Um, the other thing is this. The, um, all, of the, all of the pronouns used in scripture, and I would be a little bit less dogmatic about this unless I had searched out um, the, the actual pronouns in the Greek and the Hebrew, but all of the pronouns translated for angels in the Bible are masculine pronouns. His, him, uh, you understand? So, uh, his and him, all of the pronouns, you never ever have anything in the Bible 
referring to an angel with a female pronoun, personal pronoun or possessive. It's never her and it's never hers. It's always him and his throughout the whole Bible. Then the final thing I'll tell you is Lucifer, who is a fallen angel, uh, is referred to in a masculine way and, and, uh, yeah, but they and them is not a personal pronoun. It's, it's a plural pronoun. Alex is asking, there's no they, them angels. There's definitely no Zim and Zer and Zah, but a plural pronoun doesn't give us any clues. So you have to go by the, the, the personal uh, pronouns for, and possessive, his, him. So the final thing is that Lucifer is referred to in the masculine. For example, and even though it's, it's um, a, a term, he's referred to as what? The father of lies. The father of lies. He's not the mother of lies. He's the father of lies. And so all the clues that we have in the, in the Bible for angel are masculine. The other thing that I would say is not something to point to, which some people try to do is to say, well, you know, the word angels in the, in the original new Testament language is masculine, which is angelos. But that doesn't mean that just because a word is masculine in it, in its grammatical form, doesn't mean that it's referring only to, uh, men. For example, if you take have anybody, if you've taken Spanish, raise your hand in the comments. If you take Spanish, then I can easily explain this to you because we know that there are in Spanish, there is a feminine form of the article, the, which is la. And then there's a, a masculine form of the article, the, which is L, right? So that means that depending on what noun you're, you're talking about, if it's a feminine noun, you use law. If it's a masculine noun, you use L. So for example, uh, I believe what kitchen is cocina, right? So la, co la cocina, the kitchen in Spanish. So that doesn't mean that the kitchen itself is, a fem is feminine. It doesn't mean that kitchen is a feminine idea or concept. It just means that the, the word itself is feminine in, in, in gender for its grammatical purpose. You see what I mean? So it's the same with um, like cat, el gato, right? It doesn't mean that all cats are male. It just means that the, that the word, the gender of the grammatical word is male for its grammatical purpose. So you use the, you use the masculine form of the article and you use the mask because it's a masculine noun. Gato is, means cat, but it's a masculine noun. And you use the masculine form of the definite article El gato, but not all cats are male. And in the same way, uh, that's why you wouldn't use that argument for the Greek grammar angelos, because just because it's a masculine noun doesn't mean that uh, it has anything to do with the gender of the angels. So although all angels are appear to be masculine in the Bible, that's, that's not an argument that you would use. And I see that a lot on the internet that people try to use that. Uh, Maria saying it's the same in Russian as well. So, 
And so you, ha you have to see, <laughs> su eres correcto. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so let's look, let's look at the next question. It's a great question, but uh, I believe angels in the Bible are all referred to in the masculine form that they're all male. Let's move on to the next question. Great question from Don and Britt. Um, uh, and Don actually repeats the other question about can we command angels and the question about guardian angels, which we already covered those two. Uh, Kelly Berardi, Kelly Berardi's question, love you, Christian. Christian had a, a birthday yesterday. Christian Raybert, a uh, powerful young man. Everybody wish him happy birthday. Christian Raybert, uh, happy birthday yesterday. Kelly Berardo says, when I, Berardi, when I come across the passage, I've often wondered what Matthew 12, 43 means. Uh, <laughs> I got to stop there because Dave Conan said, all this time I use the Spanish word for laundry being feminine because that's why Abby does all the laundry. <laughs> oh, Dave cracks me up. Um, so Kelly Berardi asks, what, what does Matthew 12, 43 mean when it says, now, the, uh, now when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, it roams through waterless, dry, arid places in search of rest, but does not find it. Does that mean that demons can't travel through water? And if so, why is that? I know it's a weird question, but just been curious about it. Thanks for any insight. I'll tell you a funny thing, Kelly, if you're still watching or if you'll watch the replay, um, which made me laugh. There was an old preacher, uh, Norval Hayes and Norval Hayes <laughs> he loved to be in, if he was home, he loved to be in his pool, loved to be in his pool. And he'd float around the pool on his raft. And somebody, somebody said, uh, asked him one time, why are you always in the pool so much? He said, cause demons hate the water. <laughs> and he was obviously re referencing this. He said, demons go to waterless dry places. So he was obviously re jokingly referencing this, uh, verse of scripture in uh, Matthew chapter 12, but it's a great question. And, uh, and here's, here's the way I would answer this. I, I don't, I don't think it really has anything to do necessarily with the fact that demons hate water. Um, I, I think that, uh, as some commentaries suggest, uh, that these dry places are places that are less touched by the blessing of God and his power and so there's less resistance for demons there. And the reason it says that, um, notice that in the Bible, multiple times when God's blessing is being talked about or his favor or his prosperity, um, it refers to it, uh, with water or moisture or saturation. Let me give you, for example, Psalm 63, one, listen to this. Oh God, you are my God. I long for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh learns for you in a drier parched land where there is no water. So notice what he's saying there. He's tying together his dryness of God's spirit, touching him with a place, a desert place or a wilderness place where there is no water. That's one side. So the dry place is the place where it seems that God's not touching. God's not blessing. God's not speaking. But then Notice in Psalm 66, 12, and of, and of course, I'll read this to you. Psalm 66, 12, listen to this. Uh, the psalmist writes this. 
It says, you let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out into a place of abundance. Into a place of abundance. That word in the Hebrew there is the word that means you've brought us out into a moist place. Or another way it could be translated, you've brought us out into a saturated place. A saturated place. Let me show you another thing that's really interesting. Look, look at what the Bible says that happens when a person obeys the Lord. This is Psalm 1. You're very familiar with this. People who obey the Lord, people who obey his commands and that are standing for his principles. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in every season, leaves do not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So notice, when you're obeying the Lord and when you're in his presence, notice how the Bible describes it. You're like a tree planted right by the water, pulling God's blessing from the water, uh, the wells of water. Even, even in, the, um, in the book of Isaiah, the Bible says, with joy will you draw water from the wells of your salvation. I believe that's Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. So it seems like this picture that the Bible is giving us is that when God is blessing, when God is providing, when God is uh, interacting, it's a wealthy place. It's a, it's a moist place, a saturated place, a well-watered place. Whereas when God's presence is absent, it's a dry place. It's a parched place. And it seems like what Jesus is saying is that they can't find any uh, rest. They're in a dry place, a place away from God, a place away from his presence, a place away from his, uh, you know, almost in a place where his blessing has been removed. And I, and I, and I don't know that I would use Dr. Norville's, Dr. Norville's joke as a pure, uh, exegetical argument. I stay in the pool because demons hate the water. <laughs> It's a great question though. Thank you, Kelly. It's a great, great question. Emmy uh, Wacker asks, how can you tell if a person uh, has a demon or is possessed by a demon? Um, or if they just have a mental illness more, more along those lines, how can you tell the difference between if a person's demon possessed or if they're just suffering with a mental illness? Um, I would say the best answer to that, Emmy, is the Bible tells us that if we have the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, one of the gifts of the mighty Holy Spirit is discerning of spirits. And of course, as we've covered, that's not just demon spirits. It's the spirit of men, spirit of angels, spirit of God. But you can discern the presence of an evil spirit. You can discern a demon. You can discern evil spirits in manifestation. I love what the Bible says that there would have been no outward sign. There would have been no outward way to know this. Uh, the Bible says that Paul and the apostles were being followed by this, this girl with a demon spirit. And she's, cry, she's crying out and she's saying things that are true. These are men of God. They're preaching the way of salvation to you. That's, that's all true. But notice what happened as she was speaking it, saying it, Paul's spirit became annoyed until he turned around and with knowing by the discerning of spirits that she had a demon, cast the demon out of her, cast the demon out of her. 
how, how did he know that she had a demon? She was saying, if you, if you just take it at face value, it seems as though she was affirming them. It seems like she was on their side. These are men of God. These are men of God. They're preaching the way of salvation. It seems on at face value, like she was saying the right things, but Paul felt differently. He could sense it was a demon and he cast it out. The best way is to do what the Bible says and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and understand that you can discern spirits. You can discern spirits. I've been, um, Tyler says, I always thought there will be another will and personality present. Uh, but you can sense that other, you can sense that other uh, spirit. You know, yeah, he discerned that spirit of divination. That's right. And, and, and the thing is, I've been around people that are, whether they have a mental illness or they're, it could be that they're mentally retarded or handicapped or uh, whatever it might be. And I didn't sense that. Didn't sense it at all. I just knew that they were uh, disabled or had something they were dealing with naturally. Other times I have been around people that have been diagnosed as having a, a condition, whether that be a handicap or, or something else. And I could sense that there was something demonic going on there. So it's, it's not across the board. It's not, I'm not saying that every person who's battling a mental disability is demon possessed. Not saying that at all. Not saying that at all. But there are times when you can discern there's something spiritual going on and there's times when you can't. Follow your spirit. Know that the Holy Spirit, he's there always and speaking to you always. Listen for his voice. See, the problem we have in our generation is that we're so caught up in fleshly things, carnal things, that we've quieted the, our spirit man and the Holy Spirit. We listen to the natural. But see, as you quiet your natural flesh, and the carnal side, and you become, you come more alive and aware of the spiritual side. That's what fasting does. One of the purposes of fasting is to put your flesh under. No question about that. But an excellent question. Her second question is this. I understand that some people don't want to be saved or believe, but what if it's a family member? I know I should pray, but is there something else? One of the things uh, that I would say to that is pray Geraldine asks, uh, Jerry, we asked, we answered your question earlier, by the way. Uh, we believe that we really don't command angels. There's no evidence of it in the Bible. And, uh, it seems that God is in command of his angels. Great question. But the other thing is this, when it comes to ministering to your own family members, especially ones that are older than you, it's a rare thing that your, your family members will take instruction or correction or ministry from you because they're so familiar with you. That's why I tell people to pray that somebody will come into their life or, or across their path that will give them the gospel. Because even as Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own country. And, it, and a lot of times it seems to be that way with family members, that they're, they're quicker to listen to someone else than they are to you because they're so familiar with you. And familiarity breeds contempt. And so I tell people, pray that God would send somebody, a harvester, across their path. You understand? That would give them the gospel message that they would be open to receive from. Because you guys know as well as I do, that's how it can be with family a lot of times. 
that they don't want to listen to what you have to say, but they'll listen to somebody else. So I focus my prayers in that direction. Lord, send somebody across their path. That's true, Nancy. Some people never will be saved. Very, very true. In fact, the Bible says it's a straight and a narrow path and few there be that find it. It doesn't mean many people will be saved. It means it'll be the minority that are saved and go to heaven. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting. So great questions by Emmy. Uh, and then I have another one written here and then there's some text to me. Um, why do demons need a body to operate? I don't necessarily know that they do need a body to operate. They seek out homes in open vessels. The Bible teaches, and of course, we just read that from uh, what Jesus commented about the water, and that when they cannot find one, they come back to the same place they were, find it swept and clean, bring seven spirits more evil than themselves to inhabit the place. Um, they like to inhabit a body, but I don't know that they need a body to operate. And then the second question here is suicide uh, the, a result of uh, oppression, possession, or both? Is suicide the result of oppression, possession, or both? Um, I, can, I would say that it can be both. There are people that can be so oppressed that they take their life, but I believe demon possession can also cause you to take your life. I don't think it has to be either or. I believe that either one could lead, if not dealt with, to suicide. Here's another question. Teresa Armstrong, I collect old wooden boxes from thrift stores, flea markets. Do demons attach themselves to objects? Can a demon spirit be cast out of someone that doesn't want help? Or that's, there's two questions here. Or doesn't see there's anything wrong with themselves. Uh, first of all, when it comes to uh, objects, you know, people think about this in the concept of like haunted houses or houses where demons, uh, reside. I, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Dr. Lester Sumrall, somebody asked him one time, cause he had quite a deliverance ministry. I mean, he was casting out demons left and right. And somebody asked him one time, what do I do? Dr. Sumrall, if, if I bought a house and there's demons in the house, how do I deal with the demons that are in the house that I bought? He said, sell it and buy another house. <laughs> That makes me laugh because he, they thought he was gonna be like, you need to get, you know, fast and pray and get your business. He's like, sell it and buy another house. It's more trouble than it's worth. But uh, I would say this, that when you, uh, when you have something that's in your possession, and of course, I'm not talking about occultic uh, items that shouldn't be in your possession, but, you know, wooden boxes, whatever, um, you know, if you're convicted about it, Teresa, I would say get rid of it. If, it. if you're convicted about having it or if it's bothering you, get rid of it. I'll tell you an interesting story. Dr. Rodney Howard Brown, when he was blessed with this new home that he, that he has, uh, the, the uh, Lord would not let him uh, go to sleep. He, would, he was up for like two, three days or something. I heard him tell the story. And he could not get asleep, could not get peaceful sleep. And finally, the Spirit of God directed him down to the basement of the house and there was a bunch of old boxes that were left by the previous owner. So the Lord uh, told him to start going through the boxes. He starts going through. 
He's, and he said, you can't go and rest until you get this out of your house. He starts going through the boxes and comes upon a, a satanic Bible. And, he's, and the Lord said, get it out of your house. It cannot be in the same house with you. And so he got rid of it, destroyed it. And it's interesting to me that the Lord alerted his spirit to the presence of that inanimate object and, and had him destroy it and get it out of the house. So I would say, Teresa, if you are convicted about something that's come into your possession, get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Get rid of it. Um, I dealt with this question, Teresa asked, can a demon spirit be cast out of somebody that does not want help or see anything wrong with themselves? I say no. There's people that don't want to be delivered and you can't override their will. You can't override their will. So don't try. Why go get in a fight with somebody that doesn't even want God's help, doesn't even want to be delivered? Uh, you're not called to cast every demon out of everybody. You're not called to heal every single person. You're not called to win every single person to Jesus. But do what God opens the doors uh, to you to do. Great question. Chad's, um, Chad asked a question we answered already. Do we know who the seven angels are on the throne are in Revelation? We dealt with that and said that it's most likely referring to the Holy Spirit. Grace, can you take authority over a demon that's harassing another believer that is somewhere else? I believe you can. I believe you can. And that's grace. Uh, that's part of casting out devils. Notice this, and I'll give you an example from scripture about it. What about the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and said, I need help for my daughter. She's vexed with an unclean spirit. Well, Jesus wasn't in the presence of that spirit or that girl that was demon possessed. But the faith of the mother, the faith of the mother caused that girl to be delivered wherever she was. And she had an unclean spirit. So Jesus anointing and authority extended to wherever that girl was and set her free. So grace, I do believe that you can take authority. Uh, the, the power of God does not have any limitations and it knows no boundaries. You know, I don't like to get into uh, dealing with, there's so many different thoughts on suicide. I would say that it, it, it is somebody who's not in the right state of mind, especially when you understand survival instinct. I would say that it's somebody that's not in their right state of mind. One way that I've heard it um, explained is God would no, no more punish you for being sick in your mind than he would punish you for being sick in your body. I don't believe that one sin separates you from God. Uh, I don't make, I don't believe that one sin separates you from your salvation. Um, and so I, I would not declare publicly that people who commit suicide across the board go to hell. I would not necessarily claim that. I believe that there are people who are sick in their mind and God doesn't punish you for being sick in your body. And I don't necessarily believe that he'd punish you for being sick in your mind I believe God's more gracious and merciful than we know. And I would just, in those situations, I would lean on his mercy and grace, especially if the person was a professing Christian before this happened. Can you scroll up? Did I miss another uh, uh, question that was just above that? Um, does that apply to someone you have authority over? Yes, Cassandra, I would say that it does. I would say that it does. Thank you, Nikki. Scroll down. Thank you. Um,
That's correct. No limitations. Yeah, I, I know. I know, Dave. I understand what you're saying. That's why I say with suicide, I don't make that claim. I don't make that claim. I, I lean on God's grace and mercy. I don't, I don't ever recommend, obviously we don't recommend suicide and we don't, we're, we're not people that are saying like, well, that's, that's, a, that's one way out if you're having problems. And we're not saying that. I'm saying that people that have dealt with that and have been so oppressed or whatever's happened to them uh, in life that's caused them to go that direction, I don't condemn every one of those people to hell by any means. Um, can animals that have demonic spirits enter them? We answered that yes. There was a serpent in the garden that had Satan enter it. And so I would say yes. Can demon spirits follow families through generations? Uh, I would say yes, if they're unsaved. If you are saved, then generational curses are broken. You can't be cursed if God's blessed you. And that was a question from Rose Del Valley. Great questions. Deb, um, when my dad passed away, I was there as he took his final breaths. My husband and I felt a wonderful presence come into the room. Was it the presence of God or would it have been angels or both? He was a believer. It's a great question, Deb. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of that. Um, could, could have just been the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm honestly not sure about that. And I don't have a scripture to give you off the top of my head about it, but that's a wonderful thing. And it's a beautiful feeling to feel the presence of the Lord. Um, Patricia asked, does Alzheimer's is Alzheimer's caused by a mental illness or a spirit of fear? Um, I don't, I, I have, I have no, Yana asked, what about a St. Christopher necklace? Is it demonic? I don't, I don't know. I don't have a St. Christopher necklace. Um, I don't celebrate the saints in that way in the Catholic tradition. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I don't do that. I don't have uh, any things in my house dedicated to saints. I have no statues. I have, I have none of that. Um, I don't... Um, I just don't celebrate it in the Catholic tradition, so I, 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 would, I wouldn't wear it. Uh, nor would I wear necessarily a, a cross with Jesus on it, because he's not on the cross anymore. It's kind of looking to the past. The, the empty cross is where the victory is. And so uh, that's, that's another Catholic tradition. Um, again, I would answer this the same way. I don't believe all mental illness is caused by a demon spirit. I believe that some are, but I don't believe that all are. What do you do when, when someone's paranoid, thinks that someone's following them and that people are working against them? How do I pray for that person? Uh, pray that if it's truly happening, then it would be exposed. And pray that if it's just them being extremely paranoid, that God would give them peace in their mind. Would be the way I would handle that. Um, is a spirit of grief and doubt from a demonic spirit or just weakness of the flesh? Um, I would say that there is a spirit that would try to cause you to doubt. It's a spirit of deception. It's a lying spirit. I think it would fall under the antichrist spirit that denies the truth of God's word that tries to, we can see plainly that, uh, demon spirits and Satan himself in the Bible attempted to get God's people to doubt his word. Look at Eve. Did God really say, that's what Satan said to her, trying to doubt them give them to doubt God's word. So we know that there's a spirit of deception at work in the world. And so I would say doubt falls under that category. Spirit of grief. Uh, I believe that you are, I would call that more of a spirit of heaviness, but it is a spirit the Bible speaks of in Isaiah 61. And you are required to enter into the joy of the Lord and you're responsible to strengthen yourself in the Lord. 
um, and a very good question. Um, where did this? Where did the idea of come from of Satan being red with horns, long tail, and a huge fork? I don't know, Oscar. I do not know. Let me move further here. Um, Mendy asks, can someone with an evil spirit say Jesus came here in a real body? Uh, the Bible says no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And that's just what the Bible says about it. Uh, Alicia says, Hades, Sheol, hell. I thought they were all synonymous. Are Satan and demons omnipresent? Can Satan hear what you say wherever you are? Can Satan hear your thoughts? Okay, so that's multiple questions. Let me hit them all quickly. Hades and Sheol. Sheol was the word used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Hades is the Greek word used in the New Testament. They refer to the temporary hell that is right now where people are being held until judgment day. Uh, the, the paradise compartment of hell is no longer needed because Christ has already come. And uh, now every uh, spirit that dies that is uh, loyal to Christ goes to heaven. So the final hell, the lake of fire, is called Gehenna. And it is where in the future Christ will cast the devil, all of his angels, and every uh, rebellious spirit. Um, are Satan and demons omnipresent? No. Only God is. Can Satan hear what you say wherever you are? No. Can Satan hear your thoughts? No. Those are all answers to those. Marie Miller, what is my authority over spirits regarding my grown children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren? I would say the same. I, I would, uh, you have authority over demon spirits. And so if, you're, if your children are standing, again, it's, it's, you have authority over demons. You don't have authority over people's free will. So people have to catch, they have to get the victory for themselves. People have to get the victory for themselves. Thanks, Chad, for sowing a seed. If anybody wants to follow Chad's example and sow a seed, you can do that today. Uh, there's the information on the screen. You can put up the lower third. Um, so for Marie Miller, what's my authority over spirits? I would say you have authority over the devil, but people need to gain the, the victory for themselves. You can't lean especially as an adult, you can't lean on somebody else's authority and anointing. You've got to get it for yourself. Great question. Karen says, I battled with fear and depression for 40 plus years and I've been seeing a deliverance minister regularly since July with no freedom. Does that mean it's not a spirit, spirit and maybe chemical? No, I believe that you need to be delivered. Um, but you have to, as I said, you have to gain victory over these things. You don't allow it to overtake you, especially as a Christian. You can gain healing, you can gain deliverance, and you've got to build your faith currently. And I don't say this as a negative thing, I say this as an encouraging thing that, you know, obviously it's a good thing that you are drawn to the teaching of the word, broadcast things like you're doing now. I'm very proud of you for being consistent, but you have got to make a strong effort to build yourself in faith. Again, I see you saying things and taking ownership of things. I have agoraphobic. I'm agoraphobic. Don't talk like that. S begin to speak victoriously. Say what the Bible says. Declare what the Bible declares. Don't claim that you have what the world says you have or what the devil says you have. Claim what the Bible says you have. I have peace of mind. I am joy. I'm full of joy. I'm full of strength. 
The spirit of God lives in me. The greater one is in me. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in me, quickens my mortal body. Declare that, live that, fill your mind with this, turn the news off and believe God to receive what he promised you. And you can. Tyra says, um, how do you pray for someone you think has a demon spirit? Uh, for example, a saved family member who isn't walking with serving the Lord daily. Well, either they're saved or they're not saved. And the Bible says you'll know them by their fruit. And a, a Christian person can't be demon possessed. A Christian person can't be demon possessed. So either the demons are oppressing them or depressing them. And you take authority over demon spirits. It's a great question, but you take authority and you cast out demon spirits. Ken says, how do I work in the supernatural in order to completely overcome and destroy the satanic altars, invoking and enchanting the monitoring spirit and spirits of distractions, failure, except against me and my house? Um, first of all, you need to be a Christian. Second of all, you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in the power of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says, Jesus said this, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses. And so you need to be saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And then you take authority over demon spirits and you cast out devils by the authority of the Holy Ghost in the name of Jesus that's been given to you. I don't know about altars and uh, invoking and chanting and monitoring. I don't know exactly what you're speaking about. Uh, spirits of distractions. Just don't be distracted. Focus. <laughs> And then failure, uh, spirits of failure, or, or apparently you felt that your family has been in failure uh, for years before this. So take authority over it. Take authority over it. Cast it out in Jesus' name and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, I'll give you a couple more questions before we pray today. Kwame says, uh, what can you do to improve or grow your spiritual gifts or take it to the next level? Um, first of all, there's a few things you can do. You can understand more about spiritual gifts by reading the word and studying the word on the subject. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. And so the first thing you can do is study the subject. You get what you focus on. So if you focus on and study about spiritual gifts, it'll open your eyes, the eyes of your understanding. You'll have a, a greater understanding of spiritual gifts and how they function and how they operate. Number two, fast and pray. Jesus had spiritual gifts and manifestation in his life, but he was a man of prayer. As we dealt with earlier, when the disciples were failing to operate in the gifts of the spirit, he said, you're not praying enough. So you need to spend time in fasting and prayer. Thirdly, you need to receive impartation from those that are operating in the gifts of the spirit. You need to uh, do what Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what was he doing? He would even send Timothy to churches to teach them to live like he lived, to operate like he operated, to minister like he ministered. And the same is true. Why, are we, why would we follow ministries and ministers that don't have the gifts of the spirit in operation and try to mimic their ministries and the way they set their ministries up and the way they uh, administrate their church services if they don't have the gifts of the Spirit in manifestation in their churches. Who cares? For example, um, 
I love, and I'll, I don't mind calling them out because I'm not condemning them. I'm just making a point. Uh, I love Pastor Stephen Furtick. I love Elevation Church. Praise God for them. Praise God for all the souls that have been saved through the church, the ministry. But if you want to set your church up like them, if you want to minister like he does and have the church services set up like they have them, then don't expect any gifts of the spirit to be in operation. They don't have the gifts of the spirit in operation in their church services. When was the last time you saw an elevation church service where somebody stood up and gave a word in tongues and then somebody stood up and interpreted it? When was the last time somebody stood up and prophesied in an elevation church service? When was the last time that somebody was miraculously healed? When did the, when was the last time that he laid hands on the sick in a church service? When was the last time that, uh, a demon was cast out during one of the elevation church services. And I'm not saying this, uh, I'm not saying this to vilify Pastor Furtick or Elevation Church. I love them. I love them very much. Appreciate all they're doing for the kingdom. Amazing all the souls that have been saved. But if you focus on doing it like they do it, you're going to have it like they have it. That's the point I'm making. You'll get what you focus on. So if that's your desire for your style of ministry, follow that style of ministry. If you want to have a ministry, a miracle ministry, then you need to follow after miracle ministries and see and do what they do. Function like they function. Let me give you an example. If, if you don't lay hands on the sick, why are you expecting them to recover? You're commanded to lay hands on the sick. So if you've got a church that refuses to lay hands on the sick, don't be surprised when nobody's recovering, right? But then you look at the way miracle ministries handle this stuff. They lay hands on sick people. They lay hands on people that need a, a touch from God, deliverance. They actually attempt to cast out devils and do. So the point I'm making is impartation is more than just receiving a spiritual gift. It's also receiving a way of doing things or wisdom. You see? And, and that's what I would say is that you need to have impartation as my father has preached for years. If you want to have a gift, you've got to sit under a gift. And so there's a lot of churches and thank God for everybody that's doing things for the Lord. Thank God for everybody that is manifesting the power of God in some way, but you, you get what you focus on. That's the point I'm making. That's the point I'm making. So if you want to have an hour and 20 minute church service, where every, every moment is accounted for, that everything's pre-planned, everything's pre-packaged, every, you see what I mean? Everything's pre, we already know what's going to happen, it's already on the schedule. Well, when's the Holy Spirit going to operate? When's he going to manifest himself? There's no, there's no time on the schedule for him. That's the point I'm making. So you need knowledge from the word, you need prayer and fasting, and you need impartation. And that's how I'd go to the next level. I know there's a lot of questions. I'm, I don't have time for every single question today. We got a lot of questions that were off topic. So maybe I'll do another question and answer session soon because I know it was kind of, when I sent the text, maybe it was a little ambiguous, but we got a lot of questions that came in that were not on angels, demons, or the supernatural realm. So maybe I'll get, uh, get, to, them, uh, get to them soon. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that your Holy Spirit leads us and guides us into all truth. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your spirit, uh, touching us and using us and empowering us. We thank you that we're filled with the Holy ghost, that we've got power over demon spirits. We thank you, Lord, that we cannot be harassed because the greater one lives 
on the inside of us. We thank you, Lord, that it's greater than the spirit of Antichrist. It's greater than any spirit of infirmity, fear. It's greater than unclean spirits. We are filled with resurrection power because of the Holy Ghost. And we thank you and we give you praise that we are victorious, that we have the victory because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we give you glory and praise today. Set every one of these believers on fire to do the work of the ministry. Open doors for every one of them. Bless their families in Jesus' name. We thank you and we give you praise. Amen. Listen, those of you that are watching, I want to encourage you to sow a seed today. On this Friday, take a step of faith and sow a seed. If you've been enjoying this ministry, if you've been enjoying this series, if you know what we're doing around the world to touch people with the gospel, Take a minute and sow a seed today financially. On the screen, you can see the ways to do that. You can go to miracleword.com. Every single way to give is listed at miracleword.com forward slash give. We want to encourage you to partner with this ministry on a monthly basis uh, and, be a, and be a blessing to the world. That's what you're doing. You're being a blessing to the world. Can I get the wide shot? Uh, I wanted to show you this before we go. I've got the uh, all of the items that we're putting here in the elite study collection that are coming to those that are um, sowing $5,000 or more. And I love this because we've got three of the absolute best uh, study Bible resources that you can get uh, available. Look at this. We've got the, uh, the Dakes reference Bible, which I love. And this is a leather uh, version of the Dakes reference Bible. So we're going to send you a leather version of the Dakes reference. On top of that, we have the Genuine Leather Life Application Study Bible in the New Living Translation that's in the box as well. And then one of my favorite things of all time. This is the NET uh, with full notes edition. 60,000 60, translators notes uh, from Scripture, Old and New Testament these three Bibles are, in my opinion, the greatest resource tools right now uh, for believers to get involved with. And then we've got two books that we're also including on studying the scripture that will help you immensely, immensely in uh, your Bible study. So all of this is being packaged up in a custom box uh, that we're sending just to you that are standing with us at $5,000 or more. And then, of course, for everybody that's sewing $1,000 or more, we're sending the Genuine Leather Life Application Study Bible. And then this month, everybody sewing $85 or more, we're going to be sending you Dr. Cho's book, Prayer That Brings Revival. And uh, this is so awesome and convicting. I love this book. It actually even tells the story of how the Brownsville Revival um, began in Pensacola, Florida. If you're sewing, go to miracleword.com forward slash offer, fill out the form so we know um, exactly where to send your gifts when you're sewing. We love you guys very much. Don't forget a few, a few comments before we go. This Sunday begins the tent meeting in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. It's Sunday through Friday. If you're close, come to it. It's going to be powerful. Uh, it's needed right now in Elizabeth City. And it's going to be an amazing revival. Number two, we've got all new kids content that released Wednesday. And uh, you've got all of that in the app and at MiracleWordKids.com. And you can watch all the content in one place on our free app, uh, as well as this playlist from Angels, Demons, and 
uh, the supernatural realm. Simply search Miracle Word in your app store and you'll get it. It's free to download. And then finally, Carolyn's going to be live today at 2 o'clock, the Friday broadcast for uh, Favorites Friday or Friday Favorites? Which one is it? Friday Favorites. You're not going to want to miss today. Friday Favorites with Carolyn. It's 2 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, don't miss this. It's going to be great. We love you guys so very much. Thank you for hanging with us. Thanks for being a part of this series. Uh, go check the playlist out. Rewatch it. And uh, I love you very much. Have a powerful weekend, and I'll see you again very soon. Later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.